the scenes in Houston are sobering. I hope that you have some kind of access to, uh, to video, not just photos and such, but just video to be able to see some of what people are going through. People made in God's image uh, in this world. It's, it's really easy, and I, I, hopefully it's not easy, perhaps, but I have seen here and there, not necessarily uh, in our church, but in other places, it's easy to think, well, you know, just a whole bunch of sinners in Houston, you know, all those people. But, you know, we have church people suffering as well. Uh, and the Bible makes it plain that suffering comes on everybody. You know, there are innocent children that don't understand what they're going through, you know, why, why this is happening. Uh, God has been kicked out of the world by mankind, and so we are left to its ravages. Uh, and eventually things will get worse and worse, and God certainly will send storms and the rest. But right now it's just confusion and difficulty. And a lot of people wondering why. Actually, there was a story my wife and I saw uh, just recently. A woman, she was in her home not realizing how bad it was going to get because she was still dry and her husband was on hospice care, couldn't move, was in a hospital bed in her home. And her, her neighbor comes, and she'd never even met her neighbor before. And it's dark, and he just says, look, you need to leave. We are here to get you, and you have got to be out of this house. She says, I can't leave. I can't leave. My, my husband is in hospice care, and he's confined to a bed. Uh, in his room, he, he can't get up. And he said, you have 20 minutes to be out of this house. We will take care of your husband. We will get him. Just go. And so she did. She's in a panic. She got her things out, and they carried her husband uh, to the back of a truck uh, and got them out of there. And it was about 20 minutes later, the house was flooded. Uh, it, was, it was gone. Her neighbor she had never met before and never talked to. Uh, realize it's time to intervene, it's time to do something. There's, there's so many tales of suffering. Some have called it a, well, if you saw the news, it progressed. It was a 100-year flood, then it was an 800-year flood, and now they're throwing out a 1,000-year flood. Uh, just something really uh, unsurpassed in, in memory. I'd say modern memory, but when you get to talk about a 1,000-year flood, you're talking about ancient memory as well. It's just hard to find uh, something so broad and so powerful. Many images of suffering in our news, but also tales of sacrifice and selflessness. But that said, many of you, many of us, don't need to see images of suffering on our television screen to know that there is suffering, uh, that we deal with difficult things, that we deal with difficult burdens, burdens that prompt us to ask questions and questions that often seem to have no real answers. Uh, They could be burdens of pain, uh, burdens of illness, uh, financial burdens, uh, business burdens, family burdens. All you know is that you are in difficulty, you are suffering, and there's answers we want. We want to know why is this? Many people ask, if I just knew what it was, I could learn the lesson and it would be over, right? You know, if it's a test, isn't the goal to learn the lesson and then move on? What other kinds of lessons uh, can I learn? I know as a pastor and simply just having a family, uh, I've known people just beg for God, just just show me what it is so I can learn it and move on because it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. God promises that something is available to us. If you turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. And it's interesting, I want to talk about something, and it's always kind of odd sometimes with me and uh, some of the boys because of the way we think. 
appropriate snicker there. I heard, I heard some of those. Uh, but in Philippians chapter 4, Paul, who was in difficult circumstance in Philippians. If you're ever looking for encouragement, it's, in, it's worthwhile to read Philippians and recognize that the one who wrote it was in chains and was suffering. And yet it's one of the most encouraging books in the Bible. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. Starting here, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, that's a phenomenal description. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Now, how do we understand that? I know when I, when I meditate on that, I see it as something that there's a peace of God that if you look with the eyes of man and you reason with the reasoning of man, that there is a peace that's available to us that we couldn't justify using only that reasoning. And it's difficult, and that's where we get difficult, because my children and I talk about what's logical and illogical, and how can something be true if it's not logical. I'm not saying it's not logical. It's just that mankind doesn't have access to the things that we do. Mankind doesn't have access to the truths of God. Of God. All he has is what he sees with his eyes. Uh, what he tastes with his mouth, what he smells with his nose, what he hears with his ears, what he touches uh, with his hands. And given all of that, Paul says that there is a peace that's available to us that none of that can truly access. There's a peace that anyone other than someone with a connection to God, available where, where things of God are available to them, There's a peace available to them that no one else could ever achieve, could match. And when you don't have the answers to why, that's the peace we need. And how do we access that? Uh, We have a number of resources. I hope to to mention some of them, actually, in the message today. You could start, and could start a whole lot worse uh, than watching the program this weekend. Uh, Mr. Ames is on Prayers and Promises. I encourage you to do that. It's available online. If you don't have a computer or a television, are you a caveman? Uh, no, if you don't have a computer or a television, then get together with someone else on the Sabbath or something, but try try to stay plugged in uh, to the program however you can. Uh, that's It's a wonderful way to start. What I'd like to talk about today, because we do, we do have resources, again, I'll try to refer to some of them uh, in the sermon, is I'd like to take an approach to finding the peace of God by taking advantage of a tool that perhaps we don't. Uh, perhaps we don't always. And I, I want to just use a single example because it's been beneficial to me. Uh, and when I say me, even before I was actually attending, but yet was beginning to study the truth and beginning to learn, I have found this to be beneficial. How can we know that peace? I hope to give you a tool for meditating on at least two of the ways. There are others, but at least two of those ways that we can find that peace. And the title today of the sermon is Peace That Surpasses Understanding. Peace That Surpasses Understanding. Now, before we get started, there's a couple things I need to accomplish. Uh, And I'll probably spend so much time accomplishing those 
that I won't have much time for the rest of the sermon because that's apparently how I, my role. My wife has tried very hard to fix that. You know, I come back and she'll say, wow, you know, it was a pretty good sermon, sweetheart. That introduction that went on for about an hour and five minutes was probably a little long. Uh, but I do think that this is important uh, to, to fertilize the soil for this, which is part of the reason why I've just focused on two things. One is I'd like you to consider uh, our hymns as a resource. And this is broader, really, than just the message here. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, we're pretty close. In fact, you might keep your place in Colossians. We're coming right back. It's like, oh, it's too late, Smith. I already moved. Ephesians chapter 5, we are explicitly encouraged to consider the psalms and hymns and other resources as something that really, really tools that God has given us. In Ephesians chapter 5, and starting in verse 18, Paul tells them there in Ephesus, and he tells us as well, and do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. Songs and hymns and spiritual songs are tools that are given to us to take advantage of, to use. God has provided them. What's the largest single book in the Bible by itself is the collection of psalms. The collection of musical pieces that a man inspired of God wrote uh, to be collected for us. And he's saying, dive into that. Don't just dive into it. Talk to each other about what they say, speak to each other. Actually, in Colossians, his language is a little stronger. In Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, and again, he's in the, talking in the context concerning peace. To make sure that's clear, we'll go ahead and start in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 3. He says, let the peace of God, this is uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. Then he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You know, we're so blessed with music here in Charlotte. Uh, I, I just can't believe I've come to a congregation where there's special music pretty much every week. The music we just heard uh, from Mrs. Ames and Mr. McCullough was just just absolutely beautiful. Uh, God has designed these things to be a part of us, music. I did a Bible study in Charlotte here uh, several years ago about that. It just touches us in some way. So take advantage of them. But I, I do like his words here, and he, he used the same language in the previous a reading that we, the purest verse we looked at, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It wasn't just the psalms of the Bible. Though really that should be your first stop, really. The psalms are given to us and are truly inspired in every way. But there were other songs they sang as well. In fact, there's uh, certain scholars, when you look at the text of the New Testament, it seems as though perhaps snippets of some of those songs possibly have been preserved. Uh, but we have a hymnal. Uh, you had an opportunity to actually get one of these when they were created, a personal copy for your family. And there's not just hymns in there. One of the blessings of our church, I do believe, is that so many of our songs are adapted directly from the Psalms. Uh, it's a blessing. It's something amazing. 
Uh, I remember uh, talking with someone online. Uh, he was someone that is kind of a perpetual, what we call a go-to. Someone who seems like they will never attend, and you talk to them for years and years and years, and there's always some reason they don't. But yet they just keep showing up, and you pray that one day God flips a switch. And uh, this particular individual was critical of the songs that we sing in the hymnal because uh, he'd heard about it and read about it, and people were criticizing them. And I say, you get to a certain point where maybe a little sarcasm is justified. Be careful about that. You know, have your speech seasoned, you know, with salt, be grace. But still, it's like, wow, I, I see where you're coming from. That's terrible to sing the Psalms out of the Bible in your church. Wow, he goes, all right, okay, yeah, wait a minute. And, and we had a pleasant discussion, you know, about that. Uh, it's a beautiful gift to have the Psalms put to music and make up such a part of our hymnal. But those aren't the only songs in here. The world has a lot of songs they have developed in their attempts to praise God as they understand Him. And one of the things I appreciate is how carefully selected those songs in here are. Uh, you won't see Oh Christmas Tree in here. You won't see any, you won't see any of those. If you do, you grab the wrong hymnal. You grab it from your brother-in-law, perhaps, or something on the, on the way in. Uh, but you do see some that were chosen because what they contain are truths. Uh, Dr. Meredith of the Council of Elders, these were reviewed by, by folks at headquarters to ensure that, that what's in here is, is truthful, that there's something worth singing, uh, and we sing them here. And so I, I, want to, I, had, I want to establish that because I do plan on actually using one of these psalms uh, as essentially the point I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to make today, what I'd like you to be able to, to take home. But before I can do that, I need to get to the other uh, foundational piece of this sermon, which is the tale of a very successful lawyer in Chicago. Uh, his name was Horatio, and he was a very successful lawyer in Chicago in the 1800s. Uh, so it was quite some time ago, uh, when even before World War, before World War One, uh, he married a woman named Anna. Uh, they had a good marriage, it seemed. And he was an elder in the Presbyterian Church. So that said, I want to make sure it's very clear here up front that anything I say about him is not an endorsement of the doctrines of the Presbyterian Church. Uh, if I'm talking about someone, if I have to talk about Genghis Khan up here, it is not an endorsement of his way of life or any of his personal beliefs necessarily. Uh, so keep that in mind. I'm not endorsing that. But I do want you have to understand concerning the context of the song that he was a religious man. Uh, he was someone who believed in God. He was a, he was a, essentially we'd say a local elder there in his church. Actually, he and his wife were uh, good friends with a very famous evangelist at the time, Dwight Moody. Uh, you may have heard that name before, the Moody Institute, et cetera. In terms of uh, uh, the worldly Christianity, that actually was a, a pretty important institution. Uh, so anyway, he was a religious man, very successful lawyer. Actually began investing in the development of Chicago to the north. Uh, Chicago, even then, very bustling city, you know, very, very much a hub of industry, uh, finance. And so he himself was investing a lot of his personal uh, wealth in a lot of development north of Chicago. And then in 1871, tragedy struck. Uh, some of you who are history buffs may know the date. I, I'm not a history buff. I would not have known it. 1871 was the year of the Great Chicago Fire. Uh, reduced vast amounts of Chicago essentially to ashes. And that certainly included uh, what he was investing in north of Chicago. And then it didn't stop there. 1871 was a very difficult year. He had several children, uh, daughters, but one son, an infant son, about two years old that year, 
and his son also died that year of scarlet fever. So 1871 was a very difficult year for Horatio and Anna. Two years later in 1873, they decided they needed a vacation. Uh, they needed, they needed to do something. They needed to go out. And so they decided to go to Europe. Uh, England in particular, but Europe. They had friends in Europe that they were looking forward to seeing. Uh, also, uh, uh, Dwight Moody, the evangelist I mentioned a while ago, he was going to be actually preaching up in England. They thought it would be a good time to go, uh, to see him, to be a part of that. And so they looked forward to that vacation in 1873. So the plan was for them, the whole family, uh, he himself, uh, his wife, and their four daughters, uh, Annie, who was 11, Maggie, who was 9, Bessie, who was 5, and Tanette, who was 2. Quite a compliment. I've been there uh, with the kids spread out like that. It's a, it's quite a special collection. Anyway, uh, trying to move around with uh, with four kids. They had friends going as well with them on the boat. I'm probably going to mispronounce the name of the boat. It was a French ocean liner uh, that would uh, go back and forth from New York to uh, to England. And I'm, I'll, I'll do my best, but forgive me, anyone who uh, might know their French very well. Uh, but it was the Ville du Havre. In Texan, it'd be the Villa du Havre, but uh, trying to do it right, something like uh, the Ville du Havre. 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 All right, we're going with that. Anyway, it was a French ship, uh, and so it was an ocean liner. It would actually take quite some time to cross from, from one to the other. Trips like that weren't, you know, they weren't like that. It would generally take, say, a couple of weeks or so, or maybe, you know, a week, week and a half. Uh, so they were all going to go there, 1873, with their friends and be there. And then at the last moment some extremely urgent business came up to take care of there uh, in Chicago. And rather than everybody stay back, uh, Anna, the four girls, they went ahead and went uh, with the crowd. He said, y'all go ahead and go. And then he would stay and take care of all these matters, probably take a few days, however long. And then he would meet up with them in England uh, in a boat to follow. And so they did. So Anna and the four girls uh, left on the trip there in November of 1873. And then uh, November 22nd of 1873, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, four days into the trip in the middle of the Atlantic, the ship uh, collided with an iron Scottish vessel. Uh, unexpectedly, the uh, captain of the Scottish vessel saw what was happening, but just too late, wasn't able to avoid it. It was quite a violent collision. Uh, broke the French ship almost virtually in half, and the ship sank within 12 minutes. Uh, of the 313 people on board, 226 died. Anna herself survive. But the violence of the collision wrenched her daughters from her and all four girls uh, died there in the Atlantic. And she was found as a survivor floating unconscious on a small scrap of debris from the ship. Now this wasn't the days where there's internet or there's email and news travels slowly. Uh, It took her about 10 days to get to finish the trip, to get to England where they, were, where they were going, where the ship that rescued them was taking them. And she sent her husband a telegram 
uh, 10 days after the accident, and he received it there here in the U.S., uh, said, it was very brief, it was telegrams, it cost money, but it began, saved alone. What shall I do? Anna said to another survivor at the time, she said, God gave me four daughters. Now they have been taken from me. Someday, I'll understand why. Well, Horatio rushed to join his grief-stricken wife. Uh, got the soonest boat that he could to travel the Atlantic. Uh, jumped on and just took off. And four days into his own trip, the captain of the boat took the time to inform him that at that very moment, they were passing over the place where the accident had occurred and where uh, his family's ship had gone down and where his daughters would have been located. So at that time, Horatio, who had a bit of paper on him from the hotel that was nearby his law office there in Chicago, grabbed that and grabbed a pen and wrote the following words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows, like sea billows, roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend, a song in the night. Oh, my soul. I hope it's familiar. Uh, we sang it just a few moments ago. A slightly tweaked version of that, which I should mention he himself tweaked. Uh, he changed the words at the end to even so it is well with my soul later on. He actually added another uh, couple of verses. We have three of those four verses in our hymnal. There, in truly what at least I have to believe, would be almost unimaginable grief. When you are filled, at least I would be, filled with the question of why, 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 over and over and over, he penned these amazing words that we sing in hymn 87, it is well with my soul. In that story, I find keys reflected from scripture to accessing the peace of God, to accessing that peace that surpasses all understanding. Because the world would look at any of us in that position and say, how can you be at peace? How can your spirit, your soul, your being ring out 
it is well with my soul. I know in the ministry we, we wrestle with people, not against them, but wrestle on their side with them against trials and difficulties because they are struggling with that very answer. How can it be well with my soul when I don't understand why? How can it be well with my soul when the trial continues and does not end? Though I have asked and asked and asked. I have no idea if Horatio asked for God to deliver his daughters. I have no idea if he asked that perhaps through some amazing miracle as they passed on the ocean that he would see them there floating perhaps on, on some piece of wreckage or that, that, that hope beyond hopes perhaps they'd been preserved. Or even as Dr. Meredith talked about when his friend died that God wouldn't possibly just raise them knowing that God can do everything. And yet in the face of all of that, someone who I would dare say does not fully understand the real God. And does not fully understand his plan like God's own people have been blessed to understand. Was able to find a solace. That Dr. Meredith and those responsible for this hymnal decided these things speak truths. And these things are worth meditating on and singing about. And so I want to talk about two particular sources that I find reflected in this song concerning the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. First, consider the introduction of the psalm because it sort of sets the pace. And at this point, rather than reading his original words, because we tend to sing Psalm 87, I'd like to read Psalm 87. It barely varies, really. Again, it's only just a a word there at the end that he modified here and there. Verse 1 from page 87. You don't have to get your hymnal out and read it with me, but it's, it's in the very hymns you have there at your seat. It says, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Notice the kind of contradiction there, you know, times of peace, times that are that are normal and peaceful versus times when it's like the sorrows are like sea billows, just unending one after the other as perhaps he had felt the first four days of that trip looking out on the ocean. He says, regardless of the circumstance, Regardless of what I see around me, he says, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. It's important to recognize that the kind of peace that surpasses all understanding is not natural to man. It has to be given to us from God. God has to teach it to us. And that's the pace he sets here. In that sense that we can reflect on that we're talking about a peace that is not dependent on our circumstances. Whether we have peace and it's like a river and it's powerful or whether we're in torment, like we're tossed about to and fro. We're trying to talk about a peace that surpasses all of that. A peace that is not a function of pain, not a function of suffering, not a function of happiness and joy but something that is rock solid the same, regardless. And by the way, I hope it comes across, or I I want to be up front. I'm not saying I've actually achieved this, and in every circumstance I always feel this. It's a constant growing, isn't it, for us? It really is. I'll talk about that just a little bit later. Uh, But we move, we grow, and these are our targets. Paul achieved a good sense of this. Uh, If you'll turn to Philippians chapter 4. 
Again, such an encouraging book. You have to know a bit of the history of it. You have to know the source and what was going on with Paul. Take an LU class. I know we have classes on such things. Uh, But you need to know the background to really get the full impact of it. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says in verse 11, after he's been talking to the Philippians about things, he mentions in verse 11, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've heard that verse a lot, uh, this passage, I should say, a lot. But I remember when it first came to live to me in a, alive to me in a special way that Mr. Spafford's Him reminds me of is actually when I was in training with Mr. Millich in Kansas City and he's taking us around, you know, and it's so easy to think, you know, everything. And then you're there with the person training. You realize, well, I didn't know that. And I didn't know that. And I didn't know that. Uh, And he was counseling a family in difficult circumstances. And, oh, the fella, uh, you know, just had the wants, just had the wants and and felt as though perhaps that's just his nature. Right. It's just I, I just you don't want, you know, I want things. And, and Mr. Millich's advice was so good. It wasn't like somehow this contentedness is something, well, you know, you're born with it, but you're not, and that's just the way things are. You're not going to have it because you weren't born with that. Paul makes it plain right there in that first statement. Again, verse 11, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I have learned that. Learning takes time. It takes effort. It takes experience. And sometimes our trials perhaps are those opportunities when we're meant to learn and to find that. And I see that reflected in the hymn. He says, whatever my lot, you've taught me to say, it's well with my soul. That first stanza or verse of of the song uh, really sets the stage for what it is we are talking about. Whatever our state is, that's why it's a peace of God that surpasses understanding. Because the world will look at our circumstances and say, how in the world can you be at peace? You've just told me that you're up literally every night because the pain wakes you up. You've just told me about the worry you have because you don't know how to feed your children because the jobs just keep evaporating. And yet there's a peace that surpasses all understanding and it's learned. And that means we have to commit to time. We can't be frustrated with God that we just don't have it immediately. We have to give that time because he will teach us that peace. All right. That said, the two sources I actually haven't gotten to yet. Uh, they, They really come up more later in the song. So the very first one, the very first of those that I would like to address, I see reflected in the second stanza. And I'm going to go again to Psalm 87. This again is right here in our hymnal. Uh, I do know some people who play the hymns at home uh, as background music. And I'm not saying they have to be your favorite songs ever, though I think that would be wonderful. I was a fan of 80s music for the most part. I get it. You know, there's other songs to listen to. Uh, being righteous doesn't mean playing the hymns 24 hours a day. There's a lot of music out there. I'm not saying the good music all in the 80s either, that's for sure. Uh, but 
That said, if God has given us a resource, how foolish not to take advantage of it in some way. When God has actually commanded through Paul, talk to one another about these songs. If something moves you, talk about it. Talk about it. You know, the, the special music just a couple of weeks ago uh, by, uh, I think it's uh, Mercy Me, and it was uh, performed by a couple of our wonderful church members here, uh, Miss Lee and Miss Martin. Uh, that beautiful song, uh, Even If. I, my kids and I have talked about that to no end. I talked actually with uh, Miss Lee about it. I like to think it's my, my fault that they did that. Anyway, because I, I love that song and what it says. Uh, talk to each other about these things. So the second stanza here, he writes, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Now that said, I was having a hard time coming up with a way to summarize this particular part because I do find great comfort in this. Uh, I was about to say fess up. It's not exactly fessing up. But the very first time I ever encountered this song, it was, it was a little strange. But I think I, I think I know. I think I know why things happened the way they did. I'm sorry for the aside, but I, full disclosure, I'd like to talk about my relationship with the song. I was a, it was a summer between my junior and senior year in high school. And I had just gone to a, uh, a special program. I was selected by an organization to go take part in a mock congress in Washington, D.C., they took high schoolers all over Oklahoma and Texas, and they selected me out of the area to go. And I'd never really been away from my family that long. It was like a, not quite two weeks, but it was somewhere in there. And, and you know, I had fun, but it was, there was kind of a stress to it that I really couldn't could explain, perhaps. It was a grand adventure. I appreciated it. You know, one day is more than, whoops, more than enough to see the Smithsonian. Uh, it's really not, actually. It was a whirlwind. It was just constant going and going and doing and doing. Uh, but then when I got home... You know, I was finally home, got to see my friends, my family, and oh, it was great to be home. But then in church, uh, the church I attended was not the church, but I was learning at that time. I was already going through literature. I was already learning. And this hymn was, was sung in the church. We sang a cappella. I was part of the Church of Christ. They, did, they, don't, they didn't use piano. And, and it, was, it is well with my soul, essentially the same hymn that we have here in our, in our hymnal. And I remember feeling incredibly moved I couldn't really explain it. I mean, you know me. I'm pretty manly, right? I mean, you know, come on, right? Four boys, right? You know, uh, anyway. Uh, Anyway, so right, I'm I'm very manly. (laughs) Let's just go with that, all right? Let's go with that. And yet, they're singing in church with my dad on one side, my grandmother on the other. I felt tears start to well up. I didn't. I cried at E.T., don't get me wrong. You know, I am moved by, by things. But I never, never had a reaction to any of the songs we had ever sung at church. And I had sung this one before. And I remember thinking, what is going on? You know, what is this? And, you know, at the time, you're, you're, not, you're not wise. You think you are. You're 17, think you're brilliant, you're not. Uh, and so, you know, I, I thought, well, you know, I, I, I was stressed from the trip. More stressed than I thought. But also, I had begun studying the truth. And there's truths reflected in that. I had begun to recognize the importance that I really did need my sins forgiven. And I, that, that Christ is coming back. And the idea of the heavens parting like a scroll is going to happen. That it's a reality. And it meant something to me. So here in this second verse, 
when he talks about that, though Satan should buffet and trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. He says that Christ has regarded my helpless estate. That I'm not just being buffeted around and nobody knows. Have you ever been in such a situation where you're suffering and it feels like nobody knows what I'm going through? And what a burden that is. He says, no, Christ knows. He knows my helpless estate. And more than that, has gone the full measure to do something about it. It's interesting in the coverage. I was trying, I was, I was struggling with how to really summarize this particular uh, point in this stanza. And then I actually saw it in some of the coverage concerning the flood there in Houston. I was, I was very grateful because I'm going to, I'm going to keep this up. It sounds like a slogan. But to me, it means so much more, especially as coming as it did as I was, I was trying to put this sermon together. There was a, a Houston pastor. I, wouldn't, I couldn't tell you what denomination it was. I, it wasn't one of ours. I know that. I didn't recognize him. But regardless, they were really focusing on trying to help. It's been a beautiful thing to see how, how people have pitched in in Texas. One of my favorite photos, there is this huge line outside and people enduring the rain and umbrellas and all the rest. Uh, it's like a scene out of uh, old Russia where people would be in line waiting for their, for their bread. Their sustenance. And so you think, well, maybe they're there to receive aid and they're there to receive water. And it wasn't. It was the line of people waiting to help. The line of people waiting to pitch in and enduring essentially the DMV on steroids. For those who don't know, is waiting for the Department of Motor Vehicles uh, just so they could offer, you know, some sort of assistance. And this pastor was one of those guys. You know, he's, he's there trying to help. He's there serving in some way and collecting foodstuffs and the rest. And he made a statement that I thought summarized kind of the point here really well. He said, if I know the who, I can endure the what without knowing the why. If I know the who, I can endure the what without knowing the why. Because too often we don't know the why. And often that becomes a trial in and of itself. If only I knew why I was going through this. What have I done to earn this? You know, I understand I'm a sinner. Fred's a sinner, right? I don't see him going through this. Why am I going through this? Why is my child going through this? The child was just born into the world. Sometimes we don't know the why. And that becomes a trial in itself. But part of the answer is knowing the who. Focusing on the who. And if you think about this, there's a reason that's attached to the peace that surpasses all understanding. Because what if we did know the what or the why? Like, for what if we fully understood? Like, I can endure the what. Well, what if we knew there was an ending to the what? Or, or the what were taken away, because isn't that our prayer? I'm not saying that's a wrong prayer. I pray those prayers. God, please take this burden away. Take this trial away. I need peace. I need rest. Take this trial away. That would bring peace, right? If the blind were to see all of a sudden, if you were to get a job after looking for so long, that would bring peace. And it would be a blessing from God. But not to disparage it. I love that kind of peace, but that wouldn't be the peace that surpasses understanding because that's a logical piece. The Buddhist who's been looking for a job for six years that finds one is going to feel at peace. I have no idea how he thanks what whoever or whatever, but he would feel peace. We're talking about the peace that surpasses understanding. Even if you know the why, at least if I understood, I understand why I'm going through this. 
Uh, I understand it's because uh, uh, of, of what I did last week, and that's causing this problem. I understand that someone is benefiting from it, uh, and I'm serving them in some way. And ultimately, of course, there is the future why, which we will get to. But if we had it in this life, why can't I learn this lesson some other way? I mean, I want to learn the lesson, but do I have to keep learning it? Have I, have, have I not learned it yet that it keeps on going? If we had the why, it's like, oh, you know, I get it. You know, by, by putting this aside, my life is going to be better later. Or I'm in this pain because of what I ate. Or, you know, whatever answer we had, we could find some measure of peace. There's a calmness that comes with at least knowing the reason. At least having a context for our suffering. But again, we're talking about the peace that surpasses understanding. And part of the great key to that is knowing the who. That it's not just anyone. It's God the Father and Jesus Christ that he has regarded my helpless estate. You know, I won't go into it in a great deal of detail. It's actually covered real well. Let me do point you to one resource. I see this in the story of Job. If you turn to Job 46, and I'll point you to an article that would go into it in more detail. And I plan on covering uh, Job in the uh, Bible study that I'm doing here in, in Charlotte coming up. So I... I'm going to kind of, spoiler alert, I'm probably about to uh, give you the, the main point, but it's, it's important, and it fits here in terms of knowing the who and finding our comfort in that. In Job chapter 40, uh, sorry, 42, I hope I didn't say Job 46, I felt like I said that a while ago. If you have a Job 46, send your Bible back, and I hope you kept the receipt, but Job 42 uh, before I read this, let me uh, also give you another reference. Mr. Rod McNair wrote uh, a Living Church News article titled Trusting God. Uh, you'll find it in the November-December 2015 issue. He discusses this very thing amongst a lot of other things. It's a very good article. Uh, you can find that online or you might have it in your library if you have a Living Church News. November-December 2015. But before I read Job 42, let me summarize the rest of the chapters. You have Job one and two, where his trials come upon him. If you don't know who Job is, think of suffering and put a hello, my name is Job on it. Uh, very difficult life. Lost his whole family, all the rest. Very clear that God was somehow a part of it. It says almost like a curse from God, it seemed. Fire from the sky, consuming things. Covered with boils to the point that he has to sit in ashes to feel even a modicum of comfort. And is sitting there scratching himself with broken pottery. And what he doesn't understand is he has been good. He has been righteous. I would dare say his righteousness would overshadow so many of us in terms of what we think in our righteousness. God himself talks about how blameless he is and upright. And yet here he is suffering like it seems like no man uh, even could suffer. And so you have the remaining chapters up through chapter 38. Uh, where Job is talking with his friends back and forth and getting their counsel. And he constantly, essentially, if I could pull it down, ask why. And yet he gives us some of the most amazing statements of faith in that cha- in these chapters. Uh, he talks about how though he slay me, yet I will trust him. He had an amazing trust in God. But as much as we may know God, know the who, that really can be a source of this sort of peace that surpasses understanding. No matter how well well we know him, we can know him better. Even Job. 
And so he goes through this exercise and wants to know why, why, if only I could plead my case to God. If only I could get an answer from him as for why. I can accept it from him. I can accept my own death, he says. And I'll still trust his judgment that he knew what he was doing. And yet at the same time, why won't he tell me? Why won't he tell me why I'm going through this? And after getting very good advice from one particular uh, individual, we come to chapters 38 to 41. And in those chapters, God shows up. And yet I challenge you. I challenge you to read Job chapters 38, 39, 40, 41. And find where God told him why. You find a single sentence where God said, Job, this is why I allowed you to go through all of this. This is why I allowed the devil to buffet you and bring these trials. You read those, and that's not what he does. He doesn't answer the why. God answers the who. He shows Job who he really is, as thoroughly as Job knew God. And I would dare say a life of righteousness like he lived, you'd have to know him in some way. He did. God himself knew Job and praised him. There was a relationship. But no matter how well we think we know God, we can always know him better. And through all of that, in Job chapter 42, we see Job's words still suffering. That's part of the point. His restoration comes after these things. After he sacrifices for his friends and prays for them and the rest. He's still covered in boils. He's still in agony. His children are still dead. And yet it's at that time when a peace no one else should be able to access arrives. And he sees things differently. And starting in Job 42 in verse 1, it says, Then Job answered the eternal and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, in a sense, he's saying, you know, Job, who do you think you are? If you're going to understand that, Job, you first need to understand who I am. You can't get one right without the other. He says, therefore, Job concludes, I have uttered things. So I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. He talked of God for chapter after chapter after chapter. And he's not repudiating a lot of that. He's not saying God isn't just and God isn't good. He's saying, wow, I talked about you, but I did not know you. Not like I do now. He gives an analogy to understand that coming up. Verse 4, listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, the lesson of this isn't to hate ourselves. That's not that's not what he's saying. Don't don't go overboard with that. What he's saying is I have a perspective I didn't have before. I see you and therefore see myself in perspective and see my trials in perspective. Things are different. God didn't answer his why. God answered the question he wasn't asking, but which was the question he needed to ask, which was who? He needed to know God better. Let me turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Actually, there's an article coming out in the Living Church News that is literally at the press right now. The presses have it. You'll be getting it the September, October 2017. And there's an article in that from Mr. Weston. 
titled Understanding Hebrews 11.1. Very good article. I hope you will read it. But I want to look at Hebrews, sorry, Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. I should tell the sound crew, they warn me not to, you know, be careful of the microphones, not to whack them around. Say, don't worry, I'm whacking around literally everything else on on the lectern. So the the microphones so far have been very safe. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. We're told here in Hebrews 11 verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he, that is please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, a little bit of personal confession. It's not like a personal confessional. It's not, you know, they're going to run me out tar and feathers and such. But how I relate to this verse and how I understand it has really impacted me in a lot of ways and relates to some of this in terms of understanding. Well, in terms of understanding this, the first part says you have to believe that God is. That seems kind of dumb, right? Well, of course, you know, you're going to please God. You're going to approach him. You don't have faith. You got to believe that he exists. Duh, right? Uh, But it's more than that. You know, the world believes in all sorts of different kinds of gods. We have to believe in a God that is truly omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, right? Omnipresent, not because he's a blob, but because through his spirit he can access everywhere, that sees everything, that knows who we are and, and watches and is there all the time. But even that's not enough. To believe in that God isn't enough. And this is where it gets more difficult, at least for me. This is a challenge for me. To find that peace that surpasses all understanding. Because if I just stop there with an all-powerful God, then it only accentuates my problem. Why am I still suffering? Because He can fix this. Why am I still going through this trial? He's omniscient, so I know He knows. He's omnipresent. His Spirit gives Him access right here to this situation. And he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He could fix it with a word. And what it challenges me on is the second half. I also have to believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I have to believe that he is good. And I have to trust him. Where do we find that? Where do we find? Where is our anchor for that? Where is our anchor that tells us God loves us? It'd be easy, right? If, if, if my life was uh, sunshine and lollipops and rainbows and unicorns or, you know, skip the unicorns. It'd be easy if every day was everything I ever wanted to feel wonderful and taken care of. And it's not that. If your life is like that, don't tell us about it. Uh, you know, it's a, that would be frustrating. Our lives aren't like that. And yet we have to have this anchor that indeed there is a reward for us that he does know, that he does see and he does love us. And the Bible gives us an anchor for that. What is the anchor of God's love? Paul gives us that. How do we know it? Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. In the book of Romans chapter 5, and we'll start in verse... 6 of Romans chapter 5. Paul says in Romans 5 and verse 6, 
For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait. He didn't wait for me to be perfect. If he did, I would still be waiting for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because I'm not there yet. If we want to understand God's love towards us, how does he demonstrate it to us? When we say, God, show me you love me. Show me that you love me. Bring me out of this trial. Change this, change that. And again, I'm not against asking for those things. God wants us to ask for those things. But if we're not anchored in truly believing in the love of Christ for us, the love of God for us, then our questions become tests. We're saying, God, I want you to do this so I can believe you love me. And yet if we ask God to demonstrate his love for us, he gives us what was reflected in the hymn. Knowing that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. I don't want to be there. I'm not saying that I've escaped such a thing, but I'm working on this like all of us. I don't want to be there in a place where I'm saying, God, God, show me you love me. You know, heal my family member. Uh, show me you love me by, by giving us some financial help or, or better health or uh, giving my, my brother-in-law or sister-in-law or myself a job or something like that. Show me you love me and have Christ point, I mean, God point to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and say, Wally, I did. I did. And if you don't think that demonstrates that love, you don't know me well enough. And you don't know what that meant. And so this verse challenges me in the face of things where I don't know the answer to why. To reflect on Christ's sacrifice. God points me to that and says, you meditate on that. That is how God demonstrated his love for us. And that while you were still a sinner, he gave up everything for you. We gave up everything. Uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 14. Ephesians 3 and verse 14, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. A family I get to be a part of. A family you get to be a part of. Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Let me pause again to reflect how often are Paul's prayers, what I read in, in, in the New Testament. Not so much pray, don't get me wrong, it's okay to pray for alleviating a suffering. I'm always afraid someone's going to take that the wrong message. Well, I better not pray for God to help me in any kind of way. No, please do. But I just notice so often when I read the scriptures how Paul is so focused rather on the development of the inner man, the understanding of the love of Christ and these things. And so again, he says, wrapping up verse 16, he says, with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded, founded in a way in love may be able to comprehend, to come to understand with all the saints what is the width and length 
and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We will question whether God loves us. It's natural. It's natural. Maybe some of you have grown beyond that where you never ask that question. And I, I just be upfront. There's times it just comes unbidden sometimes. But I know the answer. I know one of them. That when I feel in turmoil and the world around me is upside down, when the earth is shaking everywhere I look, there is an anchor. There is a fixed point that does not move. And it happened in 31 AD when Jesus Christ died for me. When my creator gave up literally everything. When he became human, like me and like you, solely, speaking largely, he accomplished a lot of things. But part, why did it require him to become human like you and me? So that he could give that up too. So he could allow that to be put to death for me. What did he gain by that? What did Jesus Christ gain? He just returned to glory with his father. What he gained was you and me. That is the fixed point. When my world is shaking and I'm questioning God's love for me, God tells me where to go. You look at Jesus Christ and him sacrificed for you and you see my love pictured in that. It's interesting. There's a another... Um, Understanding that, understanding who God truly is, that he is love, that he is that fixed point, is crucial to accessing that peace that surpasses understanding. There's another hymn I could talk about. I'm not going to go into detail, but uh, it's reminiscent of Luke chapter 12. We won't turn there for the sake of time. But Luke chapter 12, uh, the first seven verses or so, Jesus Christ talks about sparrows. Uh, I was meditating on just how much does God remember of us? How much does he care about us and the people he's created in his own image? And Jesus Christ made it plain. He says, you go to the marketplace, you want to buy five sparrows? That's going to cost you two coins. And he picks two coins. They're like the smallest little unit of value of money. So one whole sparrow isn't even worth one little coin. He says, and yet at the same time, not a single sparrow falls from the sky. And God doesn't know And remember. And then he looks at you. And says how much more are you worth than they are. And ask me not to doubt. And there's a hymn this reminds me of. Uh, I uh, I don't know the whole hymn. But it's uh, uh, his eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. I don't don't know the whole hymn. It might say and let's all worship Christmas trees. And let's all do this. I have no idea. So please you know don't judge me based on a hymn I don't know. But I I know that line. And I know part of the history of it. Uh, It was written let's see in 1905 I believe. uh, By wrote her name down. Sevilla Martin. Interesting name. Sevilla Martin. And she was asked back then. Where would she get the idea for the hymn? You know my you know his eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. Well there was a couple that she knew. Mr. and Mrs. Doolittle. And uh, Mrs. Doolittle was bedridden for 20 years, unable to leave her bed. Mr. Doolittle was a cripple man who could not walk and had to work his business on a wheelchair going back and forth in the early 1900s uh, from business to home. And yet that couple, who had every reason perhaps to wonder if God loved them, were a source of joy for everyone they knew. And were bright 
and, and just uh, exuded this kind of encouragement to everyone else. And she asked Mrs. Doolittle once, how can you how can you do this in your circumstances? How are you so joyful? Why are you at such peace? And Mrs. Doolittle answered. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. David talked about that. And we won't turn there again for the sake of time, but in Psalm 139, he talks about how God knows his coming and his going and the words that are on his mouth. He knows all these things. And he says, talks about it in verse 6. And says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high and I can't attain it. It's too high for me to reach and grab. It is too large for me to fully comprehend that the being of beings knows me and cares about every word I say. And as Jesus Christ said in Luke 12, knows the number of hairs on my head. Those are not attributions to his power and greatness and intelligence, though they certainly are a sign of that, but rather because you don't count the hairs on the head of someone you don't care anything about. If you've had a child and counted their fingers and toes, was it because you needed the practice? Oh, man, I'm messing up counting to ten. I, uh, you know, I really need to get after that. You know, I need some drill. Hey, give me a baby. I want to take, I'll take the kid. Sure. One, two, three. Okay, ten. Good. It's because there's joy in that. We have to know who. Who can fill the gap for why. And so that is one way to access that peace which surpasses understanding. The song gives another meditative point. And you might think, oh, no, he's really shortchanged this one. Ha ha. No, I haven't. I'll explain why in a minute. All right. Didn't that sound like I was overly proud of myself? Ha ha. Forgive me. Just a little bit of that. All right. So back to the hymn. Hymn 87 in our hymnal. It is well with my soul. The third line. We read, And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. It is well. Sorry. Even so, it is well with my soul. Part of the key to accessing a peace that just doesn't make sense is learning not to focus on the now, but recognize our hope is bound up in the then. It's a when. God wants us fixated on the time to come to a point that that time to come means more to us than this time now. As irrational as it may seem to anybody else, when you're stuck in a trial, when you're suffering and in agony and can't get out, cannot extricate yourself, there's a source of joy that you know is coming. And that is sufficient for you, and that provides a peace. If you turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus Christ gives a parable of the sower and the seed. We won't read it all. I would like to focus on one part. But in that parable, he speaks of spreading the gospel, spreading the truth as he gives an analogy like it's a gardener who's sowing seed, someone who's sowing seed. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 18 to grab the beginning, says, therefore, Jesus Christ says to his disciples, verse 18, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, I just want to stop there. That's what he's talking about. When they hear word of the kingdom. The kingdom to come. That isn't here now. The hope to come. 
what John says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, that when we see him, we'll be like him. Because we'll see him as he is. That time, a future time, when they hear that word, then the devil takes that away in various ways. We can lose that in various ways. And one of them is given in verse 22. In verse 22, he explains that there were examples in the parable where there were those who received the seed on the ground, picturing the news of the kingdom, but there were thorns, and it choked the plants that would grow. And he, gives, he explains the analogy, verse 22. Now, he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. And it's very easy to think of the cares of this world as just like, yeah, parties and, you know, parties or whatever it is, you know, whatever it is that shouldn't be distracting you. But other translations, I really believe, do help make that plain. Let me just pick one. It's the New Living Translation. I don't recommend it for studying doctrine, but it does do a good job sometimes when it's accurate of putting things in plainer language. And the New Living Translation translates this verse with Jesus Christ saying, the seed that fell among thorns represents those who hear God's word, we would say of the kingdom, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth, so no fruit is produced. It is very easy to get caught up in worthwhile things. Feeding your children is worthwhile things, right? And worrying about where the money is going to come from to do so. You're not a sinner if you're wondering, how am I going to feed my kids? Oh, you selfish sinner. We're not saying that. But it's very easy to let those kinds of worries take away the hope that is in us. Exactly what we were just admonished by Mr. Simone to be able to explain to someone. You can't explain it if it's not there. And the cares, the real cares of this world can crowd those things out. And in our trials, their power to crowd is amazing. When you understand the story of what this man, Horatio Spafford, went through, if any trial could crowd out of me the hope of Jesus Christ coming, I have to admit, it would be the death of four of my children. If anything had the power to push that out of my life, that would be it. I could see that. I could see the potential for that. Because suddenly the now is unavoidable. Suddenly the now is all around us and won't go away because tomorrow morning they're still not there. And if we're going to access that peace that surpasses understanding, that peace that takes it through, takes us through that, then that time to come has to be more real than the now. Again, Mr. McNair's article is really good. He calls it spiritual vision. Spiritual vision. We have to see those things. Uh, in Hebrews, it talks about faith. Faith isn't in what you already have. It's in the things you don't have yet. Else it wouldn't be faith. I've got it. There's nothing to believe in. It's here. We have to have that assurance. Where is our hope? Where is our trust? What is it truly bound up in? In Colossians chapter 3. There's another statement by Paul. I feel is related. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and we will start right there in the first verse. Oops, if I can actually find Colossians. If you took Colossians out of my Bible, please return it. There it is. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul says, Paul, sorry, 
chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul says, if then you were raised with Christ, which if we went through baptism, then we were, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Those things that aren't here yet because he's going to bring them with him. Seek those things. Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God. Where is that? Where he is, seated at the right hand of the Father. It comes with him. It's not here yet. Because if you've been raised like he was raised, then you seek what he sought, which is the kingdom of God. That has to be our major investment of hope. Verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Are we so invested in that future to come that it's almost like my life isn't even right here? It's there with him. That's where it is. You want to see me? This is what I would hope to be the case. You want to see me or understand me? Then you have to see and understand him because that's where I am. That's where my hope is. That's where my focus is. That's where my everything is. I'm saying that not because that's actually true of me yet. It's what I long for. It's what I work for, what all of us have to be working for. Then verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It is worth focusing on that. Let's look at one more passage before we wrap things up in Psalm 17. You know, David, as a king, had access to wealth, like his son Solomon would eventually. He also had access to sorrow. He also recognized that what he did have physical access to in this world, the things of the now, the things he could reach out and touch, the people he could reach out and touch. They can only provide so much satisfaction. There's only so much hope that can be bound in them and not ultimately have it squandered. When will he be satisfied? Where was his satisfaction? What was the source of his peace? He explains it pretty plainly. In fact, I've actually read of uh, theologians here and there who write struggling with exactly what this verse means. Uh, And yet it's plain enough. In Psalm 17 and verse 15. At the end of the psalm, he says, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Until that time, it's all second place at best. If I want to access that peace that surpasses understanding, I have to know that's where that source is. The then, not the now. I have to be wrapped up in that. My life has to be hidden in Jesus Christ, who is where? Who is in heaven, who will bring those things here. We have to know the who, but we also have to be secure about the when. The people of this world don't have access to this peace because they don't have access to God's kingdom. It's not a reality to them. But honestly, brethren, if it's not a reality to us either, we won't have access to it. And that's not a switch. It's not like a one and a zero. Oh, on. I have, you know, I believe in the kingdom. It's zero. Oh, I don't believe in the kingdom. We grow, right? One of my favorite passages, we don't have time to turn there, is when there was a, a child in Jesus' day being tormented by a demon and thrown in the fire and the rest. And the father is so desperate 
for Jesus to heal him. And he comes to him and says, Master, it's been like this forever. Please, will you heal him? Will you cast out the demon? And Jesus Christ says, "Is it all things are possible if you believe. And the man answers, and some of you will remember the passage. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. It says he cried that to Christ. I believe. Help my unbelief. It seems so contradictory. But I am sorry. If you examine your lives, I suspect you'll see what I see in mine, which is that is my life. I do believe that kingdom is coming. I believe it so much. I look forward to that being here. I love singing about it. I love studying about it. I love talking about it on television. And yet there's times when the now crowds it out. I don't believe it as much. When the 80 billion years that will only be the beginning of my life then doesn't compare all that well to the current hour of trial. But if I want to access that peace that surpasses all understanding, I've got to learn to focus on that. And that's why I wasn't going to spend as much time on this because we are entering the fall Holy Day season. This month, we're going to be having the Feast of Trumpets. We're going to be having the Day of Atonement. We're going to be going to the Feast of Tabernacles. I pray that all of us, and that includes the goofy-looking fellow behind the lectern, I pray that every single one of us will go to that festival with purpose. We'll go through trumpets. We'll go through atonement. We'll go through the feast with purpose. Please, God, make that more real so that I can sing the last verse of this song and access that peace that surpasses all understanding by knowing the who and knowing the when so that I too can say, and Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. May all of us seek to know the who. And may all of us fully invest in the then. And may all of us find access to that peace of God which surpasses all understanding. 